0: You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house ready to answer your questions. If you'd like to talk to Colin, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 Three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email openline at EWTN.com or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery producing the program. Rich Jesse handling our social media efforts and screening your phone calls. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Friday. Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you?
2: I'm doing pretty good. How about you?
1: Uh, Terrific. Thank you very much. We haven't taken any emails in a while. We've kind of had some topics to discuss of late, so let's see if we can dig into this mailbag a little bit in the first segment of the program. Um, Lenny says, I am a Roman Catholic and have found saying the Jesus prayer throughout the day very helpful. I have recently found out it was an Orthodox Catholic devotion. My question is, is that a problem? I also heard it was prayed on knots uh, of rope. Is this ever used in Roman Catholicism, and can it be used?
2: Yeah, pretty much yes to all of those. Uh, It comes out of the first millennium, obviously, the Jesus Prayer, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God. I forget how the rest of it goes. I haven't used it myself in a long time. But that particular prayer is part of the apostolic, uh, post-apostolic tradition of the Church, Uh, Despite the schism between the East and the West, I assume it's still used in our Eastern Catholic churches as well. Uh, And in a knotted form or just by repetition, those kinds of things would be similar to the use of a rosary or a chaplet. So uh, I don't think there would be any uh, issue at all with, with doing that.
1: Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Monty says, I'm in RCIA, and my Protestant family asked about saints. Do saints just pray for us, or can they take action?
2: Well, any action that is supernatural requires God. Uh, They are with God, and uh, obviously they have a great influence with God. Uh, what he allows them to do and what they can do, of course, is entirely in his will, and they would follow that with absolute obedience, um, as, they, as they must. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a question of looking to them to do things for us, but to intercede for us that the Lord himself might, uh, might accomplish that. And if, in particular cases, God, for instance, permits a saint to appear to a Catholic mystic who's living a life of prayer. Uh, We can think of uh, Our Lady doing this. We can think of the apparitions of Our Lady uh, or of St. Joseph or or some of the apostles and the angels and so on. Uh, These are all done by the permission of God. And therefore, in that sense, yes, they do things for them. They they pray for them. Uh, They help them. I think by analogy, we, we could take the categories of the guardian angel prayer in which we asked you know, uh, angel of God, my guardian dear to whom God's love commits me here ever this day be at my side to light, to guard, to rule, and to guide. And so the the angels and so the saints could enlighten us regarding the truth. It could lead us, give us well, ways, open doors for us to, to pursue that truth, to watch over us and protect us and pray for us and all do all, all of those things. Uh, somewhat analogous, then, to the kinds of things that the angels can also do on our behalf.
1: Kay writes in, and this is one that we answer periodically, but it's probably been a while, so it'll be a good time to take it today. After Cain killed Abel, he goes east of Eden and finds a wife. Where did his wife come from if Eve, Adam, Cain, and Abel were the only people on earth?
2: Well, there's an assumption in there which is not valid, and that is that... uh, the scripture is is telling us all of the people of the earth who existed uh at that time as children of adam and eve Uh, so they are telling those those who play important roles in salvation so we're looking at among the descendants of adam and eve they found their wives Uh, they were obviously those who were not adhering to that primitive revelation Uh, they were outside of that group of individuals uh, who who did uh, and on the basis of this, we see further on in the book of Genesis how, how also, um, uh, as human beings continued to depart from God, things became worse and worse and worse. Uh, but in any case, Scripture is telling us specific things about the history of man and not all things. And so that question, it didn't think to supply the answer for, but we can assume it. <clears throat>
1: Excuse me. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Susan wants to know, how can we confirm that the Apostles specifically had authority and not just every follower of Christ?
2: well i think it's pretty clear in the scriptures that jesus gave to certain men he called his uh, apostles they were referred to as the twelve uh after the uh departure of judas from among their number they were referred to as the eleven uh and then they appointed men who would succeed them in various places such as paul appointing timothy and titus uh, to the uh, episcopal role uh, in their places and so we see how that unique position of the apostle is, is sort of passed down through time. Um, we see the origin of that. In that, they were clearly among a particular category of people that we see described in Scripture, those who were the immediate uh, apostles of Christ, those who were appointed to the role of the episcopacy, the episcopoi, those who were... Uh, Probably in somewhat following the practice of Israel, which had the elders of the synagogue, the, the the priests were called the presbyters, the elders of the church. But they were in this secondary position. And then, of course, we see the apostles uh, creating the position of the deacons in order to assist them uh, in their own ministry. And so we see all of those levels of the hierarchy in the New Testament. And the complete continuity between what was done in the first century and what was done in the church today, both in the East and the West, even in those churches which are not in communion with Rome, uh, demonstrates the historical fact of that. And you have to look at it from the insider's point of view as well. The insider simply knows these things, and the church goes on living as the church lives by the manners in which it learned to live. And without reference to trying to demonstrate or prove to others, but writing down that which is necessary in a particular time and a place to elaborate on something so that you you can look back and see some elements expressed, but there are many other elements that are not. And that's what the sacred tradition is. It contains all those things which are not specifically expressed in Scripture by the needs seen by the evangelists or by the apostles and their scribes, such as Mark for Peter and so on. That or Luke in writing his histories, Uh, but nonetheless, the church very confidently follows as coming from that era. Uh, And so that's true with regard to the leadership. It's true with regard to the liturgy. Uh, It's true with regard to uh, all of the things in the church's life coming out of that, uh, out of the early apostolic community.
1: Just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from uh, from you today. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. 271 2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. That's openline at ewtn.com. <clears throat> and then, uh, You can text your question to Colin. He's a 21st century kind of theologian. Just text the letters EWTN to 5500. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: From Rome to your home, with news from EWTN's
1: Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all of it delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN YouTube, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- 288-3986. Uh, first up today is Michael in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan.
2: Yes, Colin. Uh, the question I have is, the Holy Trinity is always existing, always together. They're never separated. So are our Orthodox Jewish brothers praying to Jesus and not even knowing it? Well, in a certain sense, because it, uh, Judaism is a revealed religion. It, we speak of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, they're trying to live that as they understand it. Of course, they are uh, have the difficulty of not having accepted the uh, tradition, uh, accepted the tradition uh, d- derived from Christ and accepting Christ as the Messiah. But they certainly understand uh they certainly understand that they're praying to God. And so, therefore, the God that they're praying to is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, they would not acknowledge that. In a certain way, they consider us to be, you know, uh, not monotheistic, but polytheistic. Uh, they share that conviction with uh, with Islam that we are uh, polytheistic by dividing God into three. Uh, and frankly, without faith in the nature of the Trinity as revealed to Christ in the Church, uh, you can understand their reluctance to do that. They adhere very strictly to the monotheism, which uh, they learned from Moses. Uh, so, you know, leaving God to sort out the exigencies of all of that and the consequences of all of that, I think they they rightly pray according to their faith in God, uh, and they pray to the same God that we do, although they do not understand him. And I think there's something to understand here, too, on the purely philosophical side, and that is that, you know, really from even before the time of Aristotle, uh, Moses having existed certainly by the time, you know, 1300 B.C., and So that revelation. Um, But by nature, by reason, Aristotle derived that there must be a prime mover. There must be a supreme being of infinite uh, infinite activity who can bring action to all potentialities in the created nature. And he uh, understood that without any understanding of God in any personal sense. So that reason was very easily compatible with how the church understood God through revelation, both of the old and the new covenant, and that is an important consideration when, we, especially when we look at others outside of the church, to understand that one can appreciate that there is a God, because in a certain sense that's inherent within us, and we are striving for the infinite. We are striving for the God, for God, even though we may not know Him. Or we may not have any details of that knowledge. As Aquinas tells us in speaking of the virtue of faith, its primary object is God. Now, the dogmas and the specifics of God are important, but it's faith in God that is the beginning of everything. And once we have that faith, and of course, with that faith in Christ and faith in the church, then the doctrines which Christ and the church teaches have authority with us. We call that revelation. Some have had the benefit of of knowing these things, others have not, and they simply have a faith in God. And so, therefore, we leave to him to sort all of that matter out, all of those things out. Uh, They pray to, to God as they know him and understand him, and there are probably many people in the world who do that even without any kind of formal faith. And so we leave their salvation to the Lord, and and, and understand that He uh, is the judge of those consciences, as Pope Pius the Ninth said back in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, and we do what we know we are obliged to do: to evangelize, to preach the faith, to preach the gospel, to <laughs> preach Christ, to preach the unity and uh, of Christ in the Church, as, as. Um, Uh, Pope John Paul II's uh, prefect, Cardinal Ratzinger, said in in 2000 in his document on the uniqueness or unicity of Christ in the church, we must preach that. And then we leave uh, the prayers and salvation to others who simply believe in God as best as they understand them, to him, who alone is capable of discerning and acting outside of the formal things that he has given us through divine revelation.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One line open for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Dennis in Los Angeles, listening on shortwave radio today. Dennis, you're on with Colin Donovan.
0: Yes, sir. Um, I had a real simple question for you all uh, that's been really at the top of my mind for a number of years now, Uh, ever since I was a small boy, Mm -hmm. and I... uh, was receiving uh, piano lessons, uh, I think I was in kindergarten, uh, up at Immaculate Heart of Mary. And the um, uh, thing that was on my mind was uh, what are the dogma concerning the passings of St. Paul and St. Peter?
2: Concerning, you mean the deaths, the deaths of them?
0: The passings of them, yes, sir.
2: Yeah. Um, yes.
1: Pretty much a part of the historical record, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's not it's not a, a dogma per se, but it's certainly um, the 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 case of Peter and Paul are well known at Rome as part of the historical record that they both died martyrs there. Um, any of the movies that have you've you've seen from the. Uh, the great biblical movies of the 50s and 60s that were done, where they show Peter dying upside down on the Vatican Hill, uh, those kinds of things. Though, those are not dogmas, but they are—they are certainly historical facts, such as, upon which uh, the Church is indeed uh, somewhat dependent. In the same way, Judaism depended on the fact of the Mosaic revelation. Uh, a religion means nothing uh, if the historical facts regarding its founding are not are not true, and likewise the existence of Christ, the existence of the apostles, the existence of of uh, Peter dying in Rome. These are factual things, but they're important to to establishing the veracity of everything that follows from them. So they're not dogmas, uh, at least in the case of Peter. Uh, other than that, the church has constantly restated them, so they are certainly part of the teaching of the church on the level of, of the historical record affirming, and the church uh, affirming that as part of her own position. So, uh, the the fact that Peter died in Rome and this is the Roman see that Paul was was uh, also in Rome and he is seen as a co-founder uh, of that diocese. Uh, both of them during the uh, emperorship of Nero. Um, I'm not exactly sure what other historical records uh, but uh, affirm that, but certainly there are no other claimants. You don't have anybody else in the Mediterranean basin uh, claiming to be the places of either of these apostles dying. So that in itself is an inferential uh, thing that supports that. Now, there are other things which, over time, history and archaeology show. Uh, It's known, for example, that uh, when uh, somebody like that passed away, there was very often early on in the church a little shrine to indicate that. And this was uh, said to be also in the 160s or so, that uh, when the persecutions uh, relaxed a little bit, Uh, And the church was able to do it. It built a little shrine at the place where Peter uh, died. Uh, And that later on in this place, uh, there was then when Constantine legalized the church, uh, they necessarily built a a great church over that position. Uh, And that was the Constantinian Basilica of St. Peter. Uh, And of course, in the Renaissance, we got the Renaissance Basilica, which is what we have there today. Built on top of the location in the same place, which is said to be the place of the martyrdom of of Peter. And here's where the inferential archaeological evidence dies or or arises. In the 1940s, Pope uh, first um, it would have been Pius XII and later on Paul VI in the 60s authorized archaeological. digging around underneath that and it discovered most of the elements of the historical record on the death of peter this was the place of Nero's circus which means basically a horse track on the vatican hill uh there was a uh there was a cemetery uh next next to it all cemeteries in rome were built outside the walls of the city because having the dead among was something that was not you know permitted in the cities uh, so the cemetery was there. They found the pagan tombs and so on of, of aristocracy as well as common people, and they found a little uh, area with some remains of this shrine. And eventually they discovered some bones which were in a uh, in a box uh, in, in a storeroom at the Vatican which had been taken from this area. And when they looked at them in terms of its aiding and its their composition— Uh, They believed them to be those of a man who worked hard for a living as a fisherman would, was I think five, six or so, if my recollection is correct, and that he was missing his feet, uh, which is how they would have gotten him down from the cross, and he was missing his head, which is interesting because across town at the Cathedral of the Pope, they have claimed for a very long time to have the head of St. Peter. So here you have the bones of a man without his head and his feet. The head is at the, uh, at the uh, Lateran Basilica. The other remains remained under the St. Peter's Basilica. And all of this is archaeological inference, but there is nothing contradictory in the historical record that doesn't support the original conclusion that this was the place that Peter died. With Paul, uh, I'm not uh, sure of the record there, but um, uh, again, uh, I don't think you will find any counterclaims historically, archaeologically, or otherwise to the account that he was beheaded as a Roman citizen would have been uh, during the reign of Nero, uh, the despot, who I believe shortly uh, met his fate uh, as well, a much less happy fate than St. Paul's.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Wanted to take an opportunity to say hello to everybody listening to us today on Holy Family Radio in beautiful Fairfield, Iowa. Congratulations to Mary LaFrancis and her whole team at 103.5 FM, now celebrating their seventh anniversary. Congratulations from all of us here at EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Tim in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Tim, you are on with Colin Donovan.
0: Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I work with the the RCIA program at my parish, and there was an interesting conversation uh, at a recent session where um, one of the fellows who is um, uh, considering becoming Catholic uh, brought up that he has no problem with the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, but he just cannot wrap his mind around the the body and blood that the... uh, that what once was bread is now the actual body of Christ, and what was once wine is now the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Can you help me out with how to address this?
2: Sure. Um, well, to use the language of the Council of Trent, uh, which, of course, was not very popular with non-Catholics, so, uh, but it's eminently reasonable language, uh, this is by a sacramental mode. In other words... It is a sign, a sacramental sign, just as when in baptism water is poured, it's telling us that grace is being given according to the manner of the words of, that is used in that sacrament. So the church speaks of the matter and the form, the matter being water, the form being I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the form is telling us what the water is doing, and that is to baptize with all of that, any of the meanings that Scripture gives to baptism. The, 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 washing, the washing away of sin, the die, dying and rising with Christ, all of those baptismal implications which theology has drawn out at great length and in church teaching to now starts with those early biblical assertions of what's taking place there likewise with the holy eucharist so when in the early church for example we know that the church hid the facts of the eucharist for a number of reasons one is that it wouldn't uh, the eucharist would not be profaned so the words of of the eucharistic prayer which we take for granted when we go to church these weren't spoken this was called the secret And this Eucharistic secret was about the true nature of what was taking place there. This led to all kinds of, you think, today in our conspiracy theories that go around like wildfire. The conspiracy theory in the early church was that, well, the Christians are eating babies and things like this. Uh, A slander which also has been applied to the Jews and others down through history that you don't like. And so... This idea that it was the body and blood of Christ is hinted at and spoken of indirectly. So in St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, that you eat and drink condemnation to yourself, not recognizing the death and resurrection of Christ in the sacrament. In other words, that this is Christ sacramentally, not historically, not uh, as he did on Calvary, but in this unbloody way, dying and rising again, that we might die and rise again through our whole union with him, which is what Holy Communion is. So the Church held that. And in the middle of the second century, we have Justin Martyr, uh, who was an apologist for the faith, uh, explaining how we believe that after the consecration, that after the prayer is said over the elements, we receive christ's body and blood not a lot of explanation but that was what the church said and believed in the middle ages up especially in this scholastic era thomas aquinas and all of the theologians of the middle ages arrived at an explanation of this it's an explanation in a way it is part of the faith because the Church has, has proclaimed it to be part of the faith, and that's what in the Catechism as you're going through the RCIA you will uh, be, you know, we'll see and he'll want to understand this change of the substance of the bread and the wine into the body in Christ. In other words, think what must take place. If in receiving Holy Communion the bread was still there, and you received it as if Christ, or in receiving from the chalice, the wine was still there and you received, there would be a form or a species, as theologians like to say, of idolatry there. In that, you are showing the honor and reverence to what is otherwise a material species as if it were God. In fact, in the, uh, the Lutheran explanation of the Eucharist, it's called consubstantiation. In other words, the bread doesn't go away. Yes, it's mystically Christ and all of that, but the bread is still there. The Church says, no, we don't worship the bread, we don't worship the wine, but rather the whole substance, that which makes a thing to be what it is, goes away and Christ's body is present sacramentally because the bread is a sacramental symbol of his body, just by its nature. In the case of the wine, the wine goes away, what is its nature, and Christ's blood is present. Now, part of the mystery is that you can't have one without the other, and that's why the Church says the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, although the signs point to only one element, the bread to uh, to the body and the wine to the blood. But they go away. And then by a further miracle, and you might think of the question the Jews asked Jesus in the, uh, in the sixth chapter of John, by a further miracle, we're not experiencing the eating of flesh and the drinking of blood as in some non-Christian religions or in some cannibalistic way. But rather, by another miracle, that which makes it look like bread is still there, and that which makes it look, taste, smell like wine is still there, and yet it is not bread and it is not wine. So there's not only, in a way, the miracle of the, of the, of the, con- of the transformation, the transubstantiation But in a way, the very fact that those accidents, those properties, those signs, those things which actually make it a sacrament, that you see one but it is another, those things are there by a miracle when you receive it, and they go away there and we even say the presence of Christ goes away when those accidents go away. So a period of ten or fifteen minutes or so. So there's a lot of miracles going on in the Eucharist, But the main thing is that no time in history has the church ever asserted, uh, whether St. Paul in his letters or the uh, first and uh, second and third and fourth and fifth century fathers of the church that the Eucharist was anything other than Christ himself. And it took about a thousand years to come up with a somewhat intellectually satisfying explanation of it. Uh, But it really is because it takes care of all of the questions of whether bread remains or wine remains and why do we see uh, see the color, the taste, the smell, experience those things, but the reality is Christ. And that's what the explanation of it is aimed to do. The fact of it, the Church has always believed, even when there was no elaborated theological explanation for it.
1: Grab that open phone line at 833-288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. Next stop is South Bend, Indiana. Andrew is listening on Redeemer Radio today. Andrew, you're on with Colin Donovan.
0: Hi Colin, good to talk to you. I have a question. Okay. The Catholic Church practices infant baptism, and it's clear in the Bible that that was never the case, and I was curious why you guys have gone that route.
2: Uh, it's because we never went any other route. Um, th- this is a sort of goes back to an earlier answer on this program, and that is that The Church lived its life not in feeling in need of giving uh, long-winded explanations of uh, what—that came when the, you know, various attacks upon the faith and the Church and the teachings uh, uh, came about. So the Church simply baptized infants. Uh, The Western Church did, the Eastern Church uh, did— uh, that's why the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, and all the other Eastern churches, the Coptic and so on, uh, they baptize infants. In fact, they they give them in the entire initiation of the Christian faith, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist to as a baby. In the West, we have not done that uh, in many, many centuries now. Uh, we reserve the Eucharist for when first confession is, and that's at the age of reason. So this is, and confirmation is now even often later than that. So the church didn't set out to uh, provide uh, uh, an apologetic; it simply lived its life, uh, and that you not that common life as a church was certainly challenged by heresies and minor schi- minor schisms and so on. But for a thousand years, was basically disturbed in all of the sacraments. Uh, who were present there and lived. Now, again, as with some of the other cases I mentioned, like the Eucharist and the the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you look back into the Scriptures and you see, oh, well, that explains something that maybe I didn't understand before. That explains why Paul, when he got out from prison, baptized the whole household of the jailer. Or other things like that. That explains why the Jews initiated their children, the males, into their particular role through circumcision. Uh, The women were assumed to be Jews because they, you you know where the woman comes from, (laughs) the man can be suspect. So they were initiated. So Judaism was passed on by nature, and in the case of the male, by, uh, by a particular form of initiation. So, if the household of the God of Israel, well, entire families, were members of that household of God, why does now in Christianity we you know we don't we don't invite the kids in till they can tell us they want to be in the family, or until later? No. Judaism was preparatory for Catholicism, for Christianity. And so, as whole households came in, were members of Israel in Judaism, whole households are members of the new Israel in Christianity, because that is the will of God. That's what he prepared and disposed in Israel, and that's what he gave the church, and the church lived. Now, along comes people who who say, well, I don't see that in Scripture. That's fine, Uh, but I'm just telling you, that's the explanation, and And we just lived that and never thought that we had to explain it to anybody until there was somebody who questioned it and we had to explain it.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Right here in Enterprise, Alabama, Ann is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. And welcome to the program. You're on with Colin.
0: Thank you so much for taking my call. I really appreciate
2: it. You're welcome.
0: Um, I have a question. So my uh, uncle just recently passed away, and I Mm -hmm. went to his funeral. And while the priest was talking, he had said that he administered the last rites and did a special blessing where um, my uncle would go immediately to heaven. And I'd never heard that before, and I was just wondering if you could help me.
2: Okay, yeah, there's a number of distinctions that could be made there. If if, um, a priest attends to a person... Uh, at their death, or even if they do it sometime before. Uh, they do what are called the last rites, and referring to a number of things. They may hear their confession, or if they're not conscious, they, uh, they would anoint them. They'd anoint them probably anyway, uh, but that would suffice for uh, confession. Um, and they give them viaticum, the, whole, the special name we give to the Holy Eucharist, to a person who is, is dying. Uh, and then even the what's called the apostolic benediction, uh, which the church gives every priest the right to give the uh, benediction essentially of the, as if it were the pope or a, or a bishop uh, to an individual at the time of their death. That and here's the catch, as with all of these kinds of things, if they are disposed and repentant. Can deliver them from the con- temporal consequences of original sin so the temporal consequences is the purification that we all must do for sins that are forgiven so that's why we you know we you might think of a civil crime if you do a civil crime you can't say well okay i stole this money i uh, and that's all there is to it. i forgive you you don't get to keep the money And you may also have to do something, community service, or even go to jail for a time. Um, If you turn yourself in, obviously, they're more apt to give you the lesser than the greater punishment. But the idea, there is a human justice, a natural justice for things that we do. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that natural justice, he didn't come to do away with natural justice. He said, make peace with the judge before you arrive, lest you be put into prison and you'll not be released until that penalty is paid so he's talking about the natural justice of sin and the judge you know is not the Jefferson County Courthouse down here here in Birmingham the judge is Christ because who else would he be talking about he is the judge so that penalty is paid after death but the church can relieve it from the merits of Christ our Lady in the Treasury of the Saints as she says and the apostolic benediction is intended to do that. It's it's essentially a plenary indulgence, which, you know, as a Catholic, you can get in, it in a number of ways, and it can be given to the uh, to the dying as a special uh, plenary indulgence. Now, it would deliver them from all of those. Uh, uh the pu- need to go to purgatory, assuming they're just, they've lived a Catholic life, they've, they've received the sacraments, they're ready to meet the Lord. Um, maybe their debts aren't all paid, however. It could deliver them from that, and it would be uh, allow them to go directly to heaven. But the catch-all for us when we do something that has a plenary indulgence attached, it's the same for them as it is for us. That is, they have to be detached from the, uh, their attachment to sin, and they have that will to pay those debts, as it were. Uh, and I think at that time of life, you're probably the best disposed to receive that than you, than you ever are in life. So there's a good chance that he did, and I would be very hopeful that that was the case.
1: You know, one of the great treasures of the church here in America over the years has been Father Benedict Groeschel, and we at EWTN have had the great pleasure of helping to share Father Groeschel's wisdom with the world, and we still do that here on EWTN Radio. Join us for the wisdom of Father Groeschel Saturday mornings at 1 a.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Andrew in West Virginia listening on St. Paul Radio. Andrew, thanks for holding your arm with Colin. Andrew, are you there? Tell you what, let's go to Jacob in Lincoln, Nebraska. Jacob is listening today on Spirit Catholic Radio. Jacob, you're on with Colin Donovan.
0: Hi, guys. I had a question about um, astronauts and whether or not a Catholic would, it would be okay for a Catholic to be an astronaut on the International Space Station uh, because, there's no priests
2: up there to mm-hmm. celebrate Mass, and they can't receive communion? Sure. Um, I have particular expertise in answering that, not because I was an astronaut, but because I was in the Navy. And you have very much the same problem in the military as well. Um you know if you're in an if you're in a deployed situation especially on a ship you don't have a catholic captain we we were on a frigate which is a essentially a destroyer sized ship um, we didn't have a chaplain although when we were in deployed in westpac we did have one helicoptered in as it were and let down to the deck by a by a chair uh, so he could say mass and hear confessions which was great uh but no these you know, we don't live our life suspended because we are Catholics. We live our life fully because we are Catholics. And, you know, I think many Catholics have probably, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, but uh, I've heard some names. I think there have been Catholics on on the various uh, moon shots, on the space shuttle, and on the International Space Station. I can't believe there aren't. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing to keep you from you know, going to mass and going to confession and getting communion before you go. And when you get back and saying your rosary or reading the scripture, or doing some prayers every day while you're up there. So it's something that's, you know, like military service or other difficult situations like that, where you're estranged from uh, the possibility of going to church. Um, um, you know, let, let's live our life to the full and be Catholics at the same time.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A few more minutes left in the program, 833-288-3986. Let's try Andrew again in West Virginia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Andrew, are you with us? Well, I'll tell you, Colin, Andrew wanted to ask if Catholics believe in soul sleeping.
2: Uh, I think that's the theory that the soul sleeps from death uh, until whatever uh if i'm not mistaken no the church does not um the church distinguishes between uh this world creation which is in space and time uh and eternity uh which is god himself and the condition of the saints and angels and the souls who have departed this world but it's not sleep um we can pray for and pray to the souls who have passed the saints, we do that. The Church canonizes individuals to give us the assurance that they're with God. We can ask their prayers. Uh, they are not sleeping. Uh, the souls in purgatory, likewise. Uh, the souls in the other place, they might wish they were sweet, asleep, sleeping, but they aren't.
1: Uh, Will writes in, How do we know that a valid ecumenical council is one that is recognized by the Pope? Couldn't it be one that was recognized by the five ecumenical patriarchs?
2: No, the condition for that is that the recognition is by the Pope. Uh, the Pope is the head of the Church. His his task to be the principle of unity in the Church. This has been the case from the beginning, as Christ established Peter in that role in the Apostolic College, and he continues in that role today. So the Church recognizes that as general councils, ecumenical councils, those which have uh, some degree of that. Uh, even in the early church, those which were uh, essentially regional councils of Eastern uh, Eastern Catholics, what would be called Eastern Orthodox today, uh, accepted by the by the by the Holy See and by the Church, and we we pray the Creed from the Nicene Constantinopolitan councils and uh, accept uh, the decrees, the dogmatic decrees of those early councils as well. Uh, where even where there was no explicit at the time there was quite often a papal legate who was there the popes didn't go themselves but they sent uh... often send a legate to councils uh... but in, in the end the ultimate judgment of that is going to be why the pope does and that is why in the teaching of the church which you'll find in the catechism in the code of canon law is elsewhere and that the acts of such councils are not authoritative in their conclusions and decisions Apart from the approval of the Roman pontiff, uh, and that's the way it's always been, and it is the way it is today in the Church as well.
1: And Tully asks the age-old question, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit?
2: Now, do you mean Cicero, which is what Thomas Aquinas always called Cicero or some other Tully?
1: I don't know, just some—I'm guessing it's some other Tully. Uh, It would be quite a remarkable feat if it was uh, Cicero. It would uh, be, but it's a
2: great nickname, though, isn't it? I (laughs) mean, I don't know where he came up with Tully, but, uh, well, congratulations to Tully for having that. And what was the question again?
1: (laughs) What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit?
2: That's final impenitence, when at the end of our life we say, either with presumption, hey, I've not done anything wrong, I'm good, I didn't need God— or when we say, we, oh, I've sinned so much that I can't possibly be forgiven. So it's the ultimate despair or the ultimate presumption that essentially God is irrelevant to the question of my eternal destiny, whether for good or for evil.
1: And that's really, as, as ironic as it sounds, as a, in both cases, is a form of pride, huh?
2: It is. Well, r- f- pride is the root of all of the vices and uh, even that particular one.
1: Well, uh, we're coming to the end of another program, Mr. Donovan. And uh, I don't know that we have enough time to delve into another question as I try to give you two to fill out the hour. And the normally vociferously uh, vocal Colin Donovan gave me like 30-second answers. What do you have to say for yourself?
2: I, I don't know. I'm I'm failing you, Jack, obviously. <laughs> 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 and, I know you're pressed for time, and, and I think, well, we I better to... be quick, because Jack will <clears throat> scold me if I'm not. <laughs> well, we, we, weren't,
1: we weren't that pressed this one time, and of course, you realize next week that we'll have, you know, 45 seconds left in the program, and you'll launch on a tone. On a five-minute, yes, yeah, of some of, dissertation on some yeah, subject. Exactly actually, right. you know, but, yeah, exactly right, but I mean, that's, you know, it comes with the territory, so have a great weekend. Uh, your, your patience is
2: inspiring.
1: Yeah. <laughs> my wife is chuckling right now, and she doesn't have any idea why. <laughs> yeah, there. When you're, when you're looking up patience in any kind of reference book, you're, that wouldn't you're not going to see my picture. No, it's not going to be there anywhere near it. Anyway, on behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, and our call screener, Rich Jesse, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks again for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Right back at it again on Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house. We'll talk faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes on Tuesday. Wednesday, Father Mitch is in the house talking uh, church teaching, ancient languages, and the like. Thursday, Father Brian Milady, our Dominican contributor, on Thursdays will be here And back to Colin Donovan again on Friday. Until we get together next week, have a great weekend. God bless.